Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles. And today we're going to talk about the iPhone event that Apple recently announced happening on September 7th. Going to go into some of the features that have been delayed and iPadOS 16.1 has confirmed to be delayed even later this year. This episode is brought to you by Backbone. And I am coming to you live from the conference floor at Podcast Movement Dallas, Texas. And so that's where I'm recording right now. And of course, joining me is my good friend, Wes Hilliard. How's it going, Wes? Okay, Stephen. Uh, it sounds like I, I was going to guess a Waffle House, but close enough. <laughs> yeah, so I'm at Podcast Movement, and it's been pretty cool experience. I've met a lot of people in the podcast world that I've connected with on Twitter and have met them in person here. But there's these recording booths here at the conference that you can reserve for a certain amount of time and record. And so that's what I'm doing here. I'm recording in this booth and the crowd noise in the background, you may hear it, you may not, depending on how much post-production I do, if it's better removed or not. So we'll see, but uh, that's what I'm doing. It's pretty exciting. Uh, I've seen you post pictures from the event and it looks like you're having a lot of fun and meeting a lot of people. It is. It's pretty cool. Actually, there's people from Apple Podcasts here and I've gotten to meet some of the team behind Apple Podcasts. And I don't know how many details I'm allowed to say or not, but I will say they have a great team and they're really working hard adding features to Apple Podcasts. I was able to voice some of the product features that I would hope, like more text in episode descriptions, because if you listen to an Apple podcast, you don't get all the links. It cuts it off after a certain text count or word count. So I've been able to uh, make some requests and talk to them about some of the subscriber features. So that's been really nice being able to uh, meet them. And uh, hopefully it won't be my last Apple event. We'd love to be invited to another one soon. All right, real quick, we have a bunch of five-star reviews. This is going to be a super quick shout out. Thank you to all of these. Luke Ireland from Great Britain, T-Boy 60 three from Great Britain, Zapparino from the USA, Jeff from North Carolina, B from the USA, 104.9. You have a radio station, I guess, has a name from Great Britain. Victoria Tenday from Canada, Anchor D2 from India, and Shatterved612, also from India, some international listeners. And then Icarus from the USA, don't fly too close to the sun. Dan TW from Great Britain, Sports Mickey from USA, and 3CPO11 from Switzerland. So thank you all to the five-star ratings and review. So let's talk about the iPhone event. Apple sent out official invites for the September seventh event. This was predicted by Mark Gurman, or at least he leaked this. And so he got it right on the money. That is the event. Interesting that there's a two week lead time leading up to this event. The invite kind of looks like a star field. You can do the whole AR thing, like a lot of other Apple invites and things like that. But nice to know, September 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, this is going to be the live keynote. There are some in-person invites going out as well. So some of the press will be at the Steve Jobs Theater at Apple campus actually experiencing the event. This is the second event since COVID, you know, WWDC, some came out and now for this iPhone event. Tell me again, Wes, what is the tagline for this event? Far out, which is uh, funny because sounds like a surfer kind of saying or uh, <laughs> far out, yeah. yeah, you know, it's, that's far out. But no, it's more of a reference, I guess, to the star field. Again, these these event invites are always funny because people want to go in and try and figure out if they mean anything. And over the last few years, it seems like Apple's been throwing a, a few more hints in there. It used to be that they were completely divested from the event. But yeah, lately, you've been able to pull one or two things out of them at least. And it, and the star field, I've seen a few 
suggestions on Twitter. I, I don't know how much we want to dive into it. I saw one saying, oh, the satellite communications feature is coming to iPhone 14. I think that's utter nonsense. <laughs> you know, I saw someone say, these aren't stars, they're actually galaxies. And I said, okay. So I had to make my own uh, snarky opinion here about event invite. So here, here's what I'm saying. All right. So it's a universe made up of galaxies, made up of worlds. Right. In which you can explore with a VR headset. So maybe we'll <laughs> we'll get to see. VR uh, headset. And, it's, and the VR headset is far out from being released. So there you go. <laughs> like the Apple Watch. You know, for listeners, remember, Apple Watch was announced in September of 2014, but wasn't available until April of 2015. So Apple could announce something with a lot of lead time. I will give my prediction for this far out tagline for the September 7th event. Obviously, it's going to be iPhone. Apple did not officially say this is an iPhone event, but we're all expecting iPhone. I imagine one of the rumors that we've discussed is the big upgrade to the camera system, possibly 48 megapixel, but whatever upgrades, if there's an additional feature that comes along, because Apple always tries to tell a story, it's not just a hardware update. I could imagine far out being some kind of astrophotography, space type photography that may come along with night mode or call it something different. That, that makes a lot of sense is uh, two things. Either we get better uh, stargazing, uh, astrophotography, or we get better zoom, um, combination of both. I feel like there's a lot there, especially if there's a 50 megapixel camera coming in the iPhone 14. I did want to comment on a couple of the logistics of the event, I guess. I remember everyone saying, oh, the event is the 7th. It can't happen. It's on a Wednesday. Well, I, I believe John Gruber made a good point. Um, the last time this happened is because the exact same reason, Labor Day is on Monday. And that's a, that's a holiday in the United uh... States, uh, like a federal day off that would mean tuesday would be the day after and setting up for an event especially if people are going to be there requires staff to show up and there's probably a lot of issues around trying to get everything set up the same day that people are showing up to an event on a tuesday or getting them to show up early after a federal holiday so the only way to really do that is to have it on yeah. a wednesday and i think that's exactly what happened here and the reason why we're hearing about this so soon is like you mentioned people are going since this is an oddity previously we would you know before covid press would just just buy hotels and plane tickets ahead of time, knowing that there was a good chance that we get to go to the iPhone event or whatever, or at least want to be nearby. Nowadays, it's more of an unknown. So I think Apple's just giving people plenty of lead time here. There's nothing really to think about other than that. Right. I do think that the early nature of this event being September 7th lends itself, you know, there was the whole talk about trying to get ahead of a recession or whatever, but I also think this lends itself to an October and maybe even a November event. You know, the past couple of years has been multiple fall events. We are expecting an iPad event. We're going to talk about iPad OS 16.1 in a minute that is delayed until whatever new iPads will probably come out. But I imagine there's going to be an October event, maybe featuring iPad, maybe another M2 Mac release like the MacBook Pro. And we could even potentially maybe see a November event. Remember, we still have not seen the Apple Silicon Mac Pro that Apple has mentioned in a previous keynote and the two-year timeline is up this november that was the first m1 mac release and so we could theoretically have an october event with ipads maybe even like homepod mini and some other devices and then the big apple silicon mac pro maybe also an m2 pro and m2 max macbook pro i would be crazy not to mention if you were correct me if i'm wrong i believe it was 2020 there were four fall apple events two in september right it was either 2020 I, i'm sure of it where they announced random ipad updates or a home pod thing 
early in the month and then did the iPhone event later, which was crazy. And then uh, that was also the year that they released the iPhones at two separate months because of, again, just COVID and everything right. knocked everything out of whack. But it's funny because we all jumped to it and said, oh, no, this is the iPhone event. This is Apple Watch. But wouldn't it be crazy to tune in and there's no iPhone, no Apple Watch. It's just an iPad <laughs> and uh, like a set of AirPods or something. I don't think that's I, I don't think that's true. I just think it's funny that we've all just automatically assumed, yeah. oh, this is the iPhone. I think the fact that Mark Gurman nailed the date and also he said that it's going to be the iPhone and Apple Watch, I think it's pretty sure. Again, what are we going to see? I expect. I'm feeling pretty good about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's going to be iPhone 14, Apple Watch Series 8 in this event. That was also what Mark Gurman had said. And if there's one other thing, which I feel like there would be one more thing in an event like that, not a whole one more thing segment, but just one other product, AirPods Pro 2 and or updated HomePod Mini. I think those two products are very long in the tooth and AirPods Pro pair nicely with an iPhone event because that's kind of the you know, main device people think of using it with a AirPods. So I don't know. Do you think we're going to see AirPods Pro 2? It's an iPhone accessory. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You think we'll see them at this September event? Uh, there should definitely be some kind of iPhone accessory here. AirPods Pro definitely makes sense. Um, I'm dying for some AirPods. My right earbud uh, is slowly dying. I don't even notice anymore because I listen to them one at a time and I'll take my right one out after it dies and put the left one in. And there's a noticeable sound quality difference between the two now and it's kind of getting crazy. So I'm definitely looking forward to some new AirPods and a HomePod event. I feel like that's an October thing. Again, Apple can do whatever they want here. This is a pre-recorded event. Uh, can go as long or as short as they want. So I'm hoping for more, not less, especially with Matter around the corner and iOS 16 releasing. I feel like we're going to get a lot of details about software as well. So this should be an interesting event anyway. Yeah. So I'm excited for this. So September 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. I'll be doing that recap episode right after the event like normal, recapping everything that was said. We'll be live tweeting it as well and then go more in depth on the Friday episode that week. So exciting. We got a new Apple event coming very soon. So that's pretty cool. Now, along with that, we should be seeing iOS 16 launching. Typically, the release candidate comes out usually when the iPhone is launched or, or announced. And then the public version of iOS 16 should be coming the week later, probably September 14th. With iOS 16, we've talked about some of these before, but not all the features will be launching with iOS 16 that week. Live updates or live activity on the home screen where you would see things like an Uber or a food delivery service. You would see the live progress on the lock screen rather than receiving all those notifications. That will not be coming at iOS 16 launch. The Freeform app that Apple talked about during the iPad part of the WWDC keynote, that won't be coming. And also we had an article talking about this, but Matter, while Apple is supporting Matter right now, Matter still does not exist in the real world. So even though it's support for Matter, Matter doesn't exist. And those are the big features I think that are uh, going to be delayed. And then we'll talk about iPad OS 16 in a moment. But did I miss any there, Wes? No, I think I think that's right. I mean, Apple's live activities views will still be there because it's still in the current beta. I can't see them removing it. They work flawlessly. I just think that third-party API won't be active. And yeah, like the Freeform app, it's just not going to be there. I wonder if Freeform's going to make it to the iPad OS release, though, since that's going to be later in the year. I feel like maybe that'll give them time to throw it in with the iPad release, maybe ease a little bit of that pain of missing basically a whole month of a public release there. Yeah. And now this wasn't in the notes, but I'm curious, macOS Ventura, most likely not coming the beginning of September either. I imagine that would come out probably with whatever Macs are announced this fall, whether that's October or November. 
But macOS Ventura's settings app has been getting a lot of heat on Twitter. I know the ATP podcast guys have been talking about it, but the system settings in macOS Ventura is still kind of a mess and it still has a long way to go. Like not just design choices, but straight up things that are broken in the system settings. And a lot of people have been calling that out. I heard some of what you said there. So just to recap, macOS Ventura might be releasing later, probably about the same time as iPadOS 16. System settings are a mess. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you because I have not run any macOS Ventura betas on my Macs, but I think you're running the betas. Have you played around with system settings at all? Well, system settings is weird. Yeah, it's there. It seems incomplete. It seems like there's a lot that should be doable that isn't. Like right now, I just I still can't update my studio display. I don't know what software version it's on. Um, I'm I'm sure. <laughs> That's just something that'll come eventually, but for whatever reason, in this beta, they're just not acknowledging each other. And I understand that the, the display isn't on a beta, but come on, I should still at least be able to see what version it's on and that it's actually yeah. there. I mean, it's it's in Control Center. It's controllable, it's accessible. It's just, for whatever reason, I can't update it or see it without connecting it to a different Mac. The system settings thing is very weird. And I've seen, I think it was Jason Snell's video of the icons that he's scrolling through, and that was just hilarious, where it was just, just one zoomed in, giant like lens uh at the further he goes down the bigger the icons get mm -hmm. it was crazy a lot of weird little broken things but i don't know again this just goes to with uh we work in the industry of people wanting to get information and sometimes they react to that you know maybe emotionally or it's a beta beta season mac os especially it's not due until november probably we got a while and the the release we're using in these betas is probably two betas behind what Apple's actually using. <laughs> so we're whatever we're complaining about yeah. some engineers out there banging on his desk saying we've already fixed that. But yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm excited for it. Hopefully it'll be good, clean release by the time it's out. One of the interesting things talking with some of the Apple podcast team is on this one guy's iPhone, he's running like nightly builds of iOS 16 beta. So this is not like public or developer beta. This is like the internal beta where there is daily changes. And so he says he updates his iPhone software every single day. And uh, I thought that was interesting. So a lot of times, you know, we're talking about what needs to be fixed and whatever. And even now in the current beta cycle, we're getting new betas every week. There's a new developer beta every week. There's a new public beta every week. But internally, I mean, they're on like a daily schedule even now. So there's lots of updates. Yeah, it's like it's like having a GitHub. They can just run, push, and update, execute, check, push, execute, check over and over like an app developer. But they're you know they would never do that with a public beta because of the sheer number of people doing it, thousands or millions of people downloading these betas. It would be untenable. But you know internally, five, six, ten people running these things every hour. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it clearly yeah. they're seeing our complaints. Um, from what I understand is that a lot of these developers, these app Apple employees are very active on social, very active in forums, trying to find every little bug that's at least correctable because there is a certain point where they just have to close the door and say, we'll get that in the point one, right? And uh, as long as anything's not catastrophic, right. they can usually avoid anything too crazy. Right. But speaking of the point one, Apple has said that iPadOS is going to be 16.1 when it finally launches to the public, meaning it's going to be delayed. And we had talked about this a few episodes ago that iPadOS 16 was supposedly delayed. Mark Gurman said that in his newsletter. And so it looks like October, most likely, I'll say the latest November, but most likely October, whenever new iPads are launched, because there's some rumors of the new base model iPad 
possibly M2 iPad Pro. We'll see. I know you're a little skeptical about that, but iPad OS 16 delayed. And so Stage Manager, I think, still going through some revisions, some cleanup and changes, things like that. But along with iPad OS 16.1, when we get new iPads, I think one of the rumors that we had seen was that the camera might finally be moving to the longer landscape edge at least on the base model iPad, which I would love for that to happen on all iPad models because anytime it's in a magic keyboard or someone is doing some kind of virtual call, everyone's holding it in the horizontal landscape view most likely. People maybe still use FaceTime, it's still in portrait, but I find it most of the time I see people with landscape. Do you think there's any credibility to that camera moving to the side? I think it's gonna happen eventually. I don't see it happening on this iPad. Again, like mm. I can't remember the source of that rumor. I remember it just being, it, it was kind of sketchy or like everyone was very skeptical of that one. That base model iPad update that we're expecting, flat sides, uh, it's already so much and moving that component changes you know, it, it adds complexity, it changes the design, it requires more new parts. That is supposed to be the base model, cheaper device. And even if they do push it up to $400, there's still only so much they can do. I can't see them, you know, this being the throw everything at the wall iPad. Now, if there is iPad Pros in the fall, that would be where to do it. And maybe they got their wires crossed in this rumor. Yeah, yeah I, I see sure. it happening just because Apple's really pushing for people to get keyboards, use their iPads and landscape. It's even the budget iPads um, have keyboards and are using landscape now. So it's, I think it's ultimately going to happen. So just finishing up like fall predictions, that's Mac OS Ventura, that's iPad OS. As far as Mac hardware, again, I mentioned the Apple Silicon Mac Pro. I imagine we're going to see it this fall as Apple kind of promised with the whole two-year transition. But as far as other Macs, we still have the M2 Mac Mini that could come out and updated MacBook Pros, possibly. I don't think we'll see a Mac Studio this fall. What Macs do you think we're going to be seeing? So I'm still going off the old schedule. Uh, Apple released the M2 processor with the redesigned MacBook Air and the 13-inch MacBook Pro no one asked for. And that kind of matches up with the M1 uh, release cycle. So I would guess next, and maybe this fall, we would see the 24-inch iMac and maybe what's left, uh, the Mac <laughs> Mini, maybe could get the M2 processor. I don't really expect a redesign for that. I know that was rumored, um, something weird in between the oh. Mac Studio and the existing Mac Mini. Um, I think that might have been a previous prototype or something that got out, but uh, that got left on the cutting room floor you know, my my best bet would be the 24 inch iMac yeah. getting an m2 and uh the mac mini possibly yeah i don't see that case changing maybe some slightly different ports but maybe not even i could see them just slipping the m2 in there same thing with the iMac i imagine that design is not going to change in the next iteration they'll just put an m2 chip in there Possible to see that because it's been a year and a half since the 24-inch iMac was released. That was at the April event, 2021. So yeah, M2 Mac Mini, M2 iMac. But do you do you agree? Oh, good. Yeah, I'm not sure. Apple did promise uh, to release a Mac Pro sometime um, after that event. I'm not entirely sure what the exact wording was. I can't remember. But they did mention that you know the Mac Pro was next, and it's funny to me because now we're in the M2 cycle, and uh, that event was not that long ago. You know, Johnny Saruji coming out and and saying basically promising that uh, they're not done yet it's just hard to say exactly how they want to do this because they just released the m1 ultra mm. uh with the mac studio and that serves 
the per, uh, you know that serves people's use case uh but for most people um under the sun right there's that one percent that's like making pixar movies and um that needs this high-end super-powered mac pro and we don't even know what that looks like yet and will apple want to release it on this you know older chip technically because it's you know before the m2 but it's more powerful it's not really even that old it came out what this year and uh yeah to see them <laughs> right. release that this fall they still have time they're still technically in that two-year window because you know in 2020 they released the m1 lineup in the fall even though they announced it was coming in the spring so they could still ride that line so apple could yeah. easily release that m1 ultra mac pro maybe um or maybe they just it was in the spring i think it was at the march march or april event yeah kind of sweep it under the rug maybe pretend uh, they never said that and hope people don't get too riled up and yeah, yeah. announce it later down the line when the m2 ultra oh, is no. ready but you know speaking of the m2 processor uh, i've heard you know mark german's recent rumor about the uh m2 pro yeah. macbook pro and that and the M- m2 max coming out you know by the end of this year and that i'm not buying that that doesn't make any sense yeah um you know, looking back at the M1 cycle, it was a whole year before we got M1 Pro, and then it wasn't that long to the M1 Ultra, right? So it's just insane to me to think that just a few months later into the year, we're jumping straight to M2 Pro. It's possible, but I just see it as highly mm-hmm. unlikely. And I ask, you know, is it even necessary at this point? Right. Apple just, you know, announced those MacBook Pros last at the end of last year, and people are really just now getting them and the custom orders, the the supply chain issues and all of this going into uh, most of the, the spring and summer this year, it's still not over. And we're expecting Apple to just turn around and update these computers again while people are still waiting on studio displays to come in the mail. It just seems a little odd to me. That is true. And they could save those for a March or April event next year, along with possibly updated Mac Studio. That would be pretty soon, it would seem like, for a new desktop. But with Apple Silicon, they can release faster refreshes with updated chips almost on a 18 month cycle if they wanted to because they're it's their chips now you know they're not beholden to intel to wait on the newest models so yeah they could do a mac studio macbook pro event this episode is brought to you by play backbone so backbone makes an incredible game controller for your iphone connects right into the lightning port love the controller it feels great but here's the thing i tried it i played it i liked it but then i gave it to my oldest son and he loves this thing He actually uses it with his iPhone 13 to play Fortnite, and he can do it from wherever and whenever. And Backbone just released a PlayStation edition of their beloved Backbone 1. The colors, materials, and finishes are all inspired by the design of the PS5 DualSense controller, all the way down to the transparent face buttons and its visually distinctive floating appearance. You just plug in your iPhone to the Backbone and enjoy console quality controls as you play console games. You can do it via remote play, or cloud streaming services and app store games. And my oldest son, he plays Fortnite. He does it using the Backbone controller on his iPhone. He can do it from anywhere and he absolutely loves it. Sometimes he even prefers it over the console just so we can sit in different places in the house and play the games. So even if you're not a gamer, think about others in your life, friends, family, that enjoy games on Xbox or PlayStation and get them a Backbone One. So go to playbackbone.com slash Apple Insider now to order your Backbone. And for a limited time, you get free access to over 350 console games and perks. Backbone is now the official partner of Diablo Immortal, 
Not only is the game specifically optimized for Backbone, but you will also receive $10 of in-game perks. So find your next adventure at playbackbone.com slash Apple Insider. And you can also just click the link in the show notes. Our thanks to Backbone for sponsoring this episode. Well, I wanted to transition for a moment and talk about travel because this is actually the first time that I've traveled. Again, I'm at Podcast Moving Conference in Dallas, Texas. Actually flew on a plane for the first time in like four years since pre-pandemic. And I've been able to use several things that came out since 2018, the last time I traveled, and now that are really useful during travel. And so I wanted to talk about that and you know, if you have any experiences recently with these different devices. But first thing, being on a plane, the first thing I wanted to try was AirPods Max noise cancellation. It's been like two or three years in the making uh, trying, wanting to try those out with on a plane. And I will say they have excellent noise cancellation on a plane. I was right over the wing. And the engine was pretty loud. And using AirPods Max to listen to a podcast and also watch a movie, it was great using that noise cancellation. I will say the captain came on to give an announcement, and I pressed the button to transition from noise cancellation to transparency mode, and the engines became deafening in transparency mode. So that was a bad idea. I should have just turned off noise cancellation instead of going into transparency mode, which you can do in the control center like of your device. But I will say noise cancellation was great with that. And along with traveling, the noise canceling on AirPods Max, battery life is always a concern when you're traveling, especially with your phone. You need it for everything. It's your boarding pass. And when it comes to battery pack, I had brought two with me. I brought the Anchor MagSafe battery pack, which I really like. You can charge with MagSafe, but you can also USB-C charge other devices. It's got the button that shows you the, you know, how much charge is actually physically on the battery pack, which I like. So that was nice, but I've, I've actually been using the Apple MagSafe battery pack that everybody kind of downplayed and said it was one of the worst Apple products ever. But I've actually been using the Apple MagSafe battery pack here at the conference and also the day that I was traveling because it's so slim and it just keeps your phone alive. You know, it doesn't really charge it as fast as you would like. But in a situation like this conference setting or when traveling, I know that I have enough battery life with that MagSafe battery pack. I don't have to worry about it. It Again, it doesn't charge fast, but it kept everything alive. And I will say I did see several people from Apple here at the Podcast Movement event, also using Apple's MagSafe battery pack. They also admit they wished it charged faster, but it is definitely one that they use. The only annoying part of it is when charging, I was trying to bring a limited amount of charging cables and bricks and all that, and I have my MagSafe Duo charger, which I still really like when traveling because I can charge my Apple Watch, AirPods, iPhone, all with this little very compact thing, but you have to charge it with a lightning cable. The MagSafe Duo is a lightning connector. And also the Apple MagSafe battery pack is a lightning connector. And it does not charge wirelessly. So you have to plug in that battery and you have to plug in the MagSafe Duo. And I only brought one USB-C to lightning cable. I should have brought two. I didn't think about it. But in order to charge my AirPods Max, the MagSafe battery pack, and use the MagSafe Duo, I have to do it one at a time because I only have the one USB-C to lightning because all my other cables are USB-C, because that's what I charge my camera with and other batteries, other backup stuff. So that's the only thing about using those when traveling. But uh, do you have any reason to use battery packs, or have you had any kind of travel experiences with that stuff recently? I haven't had too many opportunities to travel recently, not by bus or plane or anything. So my AirPods Max are mostly used at home, but I got to agree, the noise cancellation's pretty great, um, especially if my neighbors are mowing the lawn in the middle of my shift and I get tired of hearing that lawnmower just pop the headphones on and there we go. 
I was at a convention, like a comic convention a couple weeks ago in a nearby town. And that was a lot of fun. Um, it's one of those things where you go out and you're gone all day um, away from a charger. So something like the MagSafe battery pack comes really in handy. And um, at these things, it's fine to carry maybe a backpack and a, a smaller charger battery. But this is something I can just slip into my pocket and I don't have to worry about too much. I, I like too that me and my girlfriend both have uh, phones with MagSafe on the back. So if she needs a charge, I can hand her the battery charge her phone yeah. or vice versa. So really great because it's a universal device, lightweight, and uh, I don't have to really right. think about it too much. Um, going about a convention hall where you're taking a lot of photos, maybe taking videos, again, away from outlets, you don't have to be that guy that has to stop at a charging station and plug in your phone. Yeah, the, the MagSafe battery pack's great for that. I'm just, the one thing I would definitely change is I'm tired of it being lightning. <laughs> I want it to be USB-C just because the that's the only way to charge it. You can't do wireless or anything else. And that's just a guarantee now that I have to have a lightning cable with me. I want to ask you about one other thing too. When traveling, I've gotten a chance to use apps like ride sharing services that I have not used in years. And when it comes to your location, I don't know, I'm pretty conservative as far as how many apps I allow to use my location in the background. All the apps like Lyft and Uber are pretty consistent in like, hey, let us use your location all the time so we can see your exact location and your ride can find where you are and all that kind of stuff. And just for me, I still default to just allowing once. You know, I don't travel a lot, obviously. It's been like four years, but I just don't care to like enable location services always on in the background. So I just do allow once for that one ride and then I turn it off. But I was curious, do you have any like location services app uh, things like that, considerations, like how do you manage those kinds of things? Well, I normally don't have uh, those like ride sharing apps installed on my phone. I live in a relatively rural area, small town. And while I do have Uber and Lyft, um, just not something people generally use. But when I do, when I travel, sometimes I'll install the app. Maybe I'll need it in a different location. Funny enough, uh, next time I'm on the show, because uh, we'll be able to talk about it, because next week I'm traveling to Virginia Beach to visit some friends. So um, when I do have those apps installed, it's usually set location only while using the app. So like the location services isn't active unless the app is open. Right. They really do try to push you to uh, use the turn on the always share the location. And, um, I've, I've noticed with some of these apps, especially the, you know, more aggressive ones like, uh, Uber, like Facebook owned apps and stuff. They're very aggressive with these kinds of permissions. They want, yeah. they want your contacts. They want your photos. They want your location and they are persistent. It is crazy how persistent they can be. You know, for example, slight tangents, but related yeah. Instagram. I don't really use Instagram for myself, but I have to use it for work and I'll go in there to post photos for the page and, or like post uh, Instagram stories and you go to add a story. Sometimes it'll let you post a story, no problem, but four out of 10 times or so Instagram will pop up and say, activate your camera permissions. No Instagram. I'm not here to take photos. I already have an image prepared for this. Just let me post it. No way to exit this prompt. You hit okay and it like drops you out of the story. And the only way to get around this is to force quit the app, go back in and try again. And usually it works that time, but it's, it's just that aggressive. And, uh, it's wild to me that they can kind of get away with it. Like gatekeeping features like this. Like I should be allowed to use an app without the camera, without being told 
like, no, sorry, you just can't upload this image because we expect you to give us access to your photo roll and your camera. It's crazy. Now, let me ask you this, because I think this was iOS 14, but now when it comes to your photo library access, you can tell an app when it asks for access to only access select photos, and then your iPhone will only show specific photos to the app, or you can choose allow access to all photos. And I liked erring on the side of just access these few photos that I'm tapping here so they don't have access to the entire photo library. But sometimes, like with Instagram, if you're having to post often, it can almost be more cumbersome to have to constantly reselect the photos that the app has access to. And I've given in on a couple apps to just say, allow access to my entire photo library. So what is your general mindset on that as far as accessing select photos or your whole photo library? Well, like I said, going to give it the most minimal permission possible. So I'm always going to say, no, you can't have my Bluetooth. You can't have access to my location. Uh, You know, Sonos, why are you trying to do all of this? You're just a speaker, right? Select photos and I'll select whatever I'm uploading at the time. Sure. It's more work each time. And I'm sure most people don't do this, but I'm not uploading that many photos to things. And I don't find it that bad of a process. Right. It is interesting to me how kind of broken this system is because while I am selecting photos in uh, the photo picker, it sometimes just breaks and shows me my whole photo library anyway, even though I just told it no app, you can only have access to these five images. Hmm. And I believe this is because Apple's still letting developers use both the old legacy photo picker and the new one whereas the old one i guess allowed them to have more custom code around it and like uh write some custom css and pull certain metadata from the library or whatever versus this new picker is a little bit more specific to what photos you get and once you selected the set of photos rather than your whole library it's showing the app that set of photos as if that's your entire library so the app can't get access to any other data. Whereas I think originally it wasn't getting everything. I mean, Apple's at least known not to just hand Facebook your entire photo library and its metadata just because you wanted to upload one selfie. I don't think that's ever how it worked, but they do get some more information like how many photos are in your library or maybe some very specific metadata or uh, at least the thumbnails, I would assume, right? Because the thumbnails would allow you to select it. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, thumbnails. That makes sense. Like uh, because the photo picker has to show you the information. So maybe the app's pulling the thumbnails and able to scan through those. Um, But they're not getting like the full resolution images because they're just too big for um, something to digest that quickly. Not unless there's something like Flickr where you're actually uploading all of your images. But I just find it funny that the system's there, but it's still kind of broken. And Apple's not really enforcing anything around it resetting prompt permission where you're saying i want to add more uh permitted photos to this app sometimes it just says sorry can't do that go to the settings app and toggle it and that's just again just wild like people don't shouldn't have to deal with that but you bringing up location services reminding me of something i wanted to discuss i saw a post from sebastian daywith maker of halide he uh, was a former employee of apple um, worked on the find my team if uh, if i'm getting that right anyway he shared a post, uh, I believe from the New York times. Um, we'll include that in the show notes. And it was an interesting story about how younger people these days, teenagers are using find my as kind of a miniature social network where everyone's just sharing their locations with their friends indefinitely. And I just found this to be an interesting story because you know, there it's a, it's a modern idea. Uh, I, I know like when I was in my 
you know, early twenties, uh, very active socially. And people would bring this up like, Hey, share your location or whatever. I was okay with it at the time. It came in handy in certain use cases, but it did seem a little odd and it never really came to fashion for my age group. But, um, I talked to my nieces and nephews. They're like teen, they're like, you know, 14, 15 years old. And it's a whole thing. Like in Snapchat, there's this thing called a snap map where everyone's location is shown live actively. As long as you're, you know, sharing it with your friends list or public or whatever, you can just see anyone in your friends list in the snap map. It's, it's uh, wild, just their general location all day long, anytime. And, um, people apparently have been doing this with the find my app as well. And Apple never obviously intended this purpose, but it's just one of those things that came along as an invention of kids wanting to socialize in this way. A bunch of interesting stories in this piece about it kind of became a social status of your, your level of relationship with a friend, like you're sharing locations with someone that's showing absolute trust. And if you see that message, so-and-so stop sharing their location with you, it could be heartbreaking. Like, why would they do that? What? Is there a trust issue? Is there a problem? Or maybe they're not my friend anymore. Um, it seemed to be pretty serious stuff. And I just found it interesting, like uh, friends popping in saying, I see you're at this location. What are you doing? And it's don't creep on me. I'm with a new girlfriend or whatever. It's just kind of funny to me that people were so cavalier with their location data and, and wanting to participate in this way. It's not required. They just invented this requirement for their friendships is uh, just a funny social status. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if Apple backstumbled into some kind of accidental social feature. Um, uh, what do you think about that? And uh, would you do that with your friends or family or anyone? Uh, share your location and never stop. I just do the sharing location with immediate family my spouse, my parents, and my kids, because my oldest son has an iPhone and my younger son, it does his iPad, which is not as accurate, but he's at least in there. It's interesting because I had one friend who we were getting together. They were in a different state and we were visiting and they shared the location, but they shared it permanently rather than like the 24 hour temporary thing, which is a great setting, which if you didn't know, you can share your location with a friend or anybody for just 24 hours rather than indefinitely, which is nice. But uh, they actually did it indefinitely by accident, and they're still in my Find My app, and I feel weird about that. And I think I, I think I texted them once saying like, hey, uh, you know, this is on if you want to turn it off. And they were like, oh, yeah, no big deal. And I was like, ah, uh, I just feel funny about it. And, and I don't know if there's actually a way in the Find My app, I'm going to look at it now uh, as I'm talking, but to actually remove someone else from it, I think if you go down, okay, I can, all right, I can remove that person. If you go to the Find My app, tap their name, you can remove it. So you can do that. But I know this is a big thing in Snapchat, seeing where other people are. I think sharing location of all the privacy and security things to be mindful of, I think location is one of the most important. And that's one of the things like in screen time settings for my kids' devices, I have it turned off for them to be able to share their location with anybody. You know, they're in the iCloud family. And me and my spouse can see their location through that, but they do not have the ability to send their location or share their location with anyone else. That's a screen time setting. I don't know. I, I think it's a little, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I think the sharing it for an hour is like the, the ideal solution. Like if you're getting together or for whatever you want to share it with friends or even in a group chat, because you, you know, you can have an iMessage group chat and share location, do the 24 hour thing, not indefinitely. Yeah, I just find it to be funny social thing that kids are doing. I know we're talking uh, to mostly adults here, but look, 
vacation sharing can be kind of dangerous, especially since, uh, you know, relationships can change. Friends don't always stay friends forever. And sharing your location like that, maybe you forget. Like I share my location indefinitely with my girlfriend and, you know, that's a no duh. We just, you know, it's nice to keep tabs. I can see that she's at work and uh, that she's making it home safely. uh, Weather is bad or whatever. And, you know, I have a couple of really close friends, like two that I share my location with indefinitely as well. And these casual relationships where these kids can have up to like 20 or 30 people in their find my app that they're just tracking all day. And each of those kids tracking another 20, 30 people themselves uh, just seems right. kind of wild to me. I just wonder uh, what the listeners think. Do you share your location with someone who isn't your child or spouse, uh, you know, someone close? Like, is there times that it's more casual it'd be interesting to hear from you guys and share with us a little bit of, about like maybe how you do your location permissions in your apps or are you sharing your location with another person in find my or even like you know do you snapchat casually that way as well yeah that'd be interesting feedback listeners tweet at wes and myself your location sharing practices you don't share your location with us just tell us how you share it with other people and your kind of internal rules for that that'd be interesting well one other big piece of news i wanted to talk about was the self-service repair program and Rappel launched this I guess it was almost a year ago or maybe it was just this winter earlier it was January of this past year I believe self-service repair where you can buy parts for your iPhone they had the manuals posted on the Apple website well now the MacBook Pro and MacBook Air M1 version and then like the 14 and 16 inch MacBook Pro has been added to the self-service repair program so you can go and actually download the PDF manuals on replacing a lot of these parts And I went through with my 14-inch MacBook Pro, you have to put in your serial number on the parts ordering page before you can even see the parts that are available or the guides that are available. So, you know, be ready to give a serial number. You can't just browse it without that. And I went in to see all the different repair types that are available for at least a 14-inch MacBook Pro. And it is a lengthy list. I mean, Apple didn't seem to hold back. You can do the audio board, the bottom case, the display, fans, keycap replacement, even the logic board. MagSafe 3 board, Touch ID board, trackpad and trackpad flex cable, USB-C boards, a lot of things here, vent antenna module, and the parts, you know, I was just curious, so I just picked one. I picked the Touch ID board. If you wanted to replace that yourself, it is an $87 part, and the if you return the old part, you can get $26 off. You get like a credit, so $60 with that credit. But you can do the Touch ID board. But I went to the manual because I, I downloaded the PDF manual. I was like, well, how difficult is this? Because I've done lots of repairs on older MacBook Pros. And when you talk about like the unibody pre-2016 MacBook Pros that were a little thicker, the ones that have a disk drive, even some of the aluminum but didn't have a disk drive, like the first Retina models in 2015, repairing things like the battery, RAM, the M2 SSD chip, Like those were still doable and I did tons of those. I replaced so many hard drives with SSDs, especially in those like older MacBook Pro models. And it was always very simple, you know, just the screws on the bottom and and replacing the part or whatever. But I went to the Touch ID board replacement in the manual and the little prerequisite thing, it says, remove the following parts before you begin replacing the Touch ID board. And the parts you have to remove are the bottom case, the vent antenna module, the entire logic board, display hinge covers, and the display. So if you want to replace the Touch ID button on your 14 or 16-inch MacBook Pro, you basically have to completely disassemble the computer all the way down to the logic board and removing the display just to replace that one little button. 
And again, great that Apple is offering this self-service repair option and you can get these parts. And if you want to replace your own stuff, you have that option. But my goodness, on these new, especially these new MacBook Pros, the process to repair any of this stuff is incredibly involved. And I don't know about you, but I will not be attempting any repairs myself. Steven, sounds like you haven't worked on a car before, at least not one built before 2012. I mean, have you ever had to replace like a stereo no and a modern vehicle i have not no guess what happens the headlights stop working because it's all so integrated the whole car is basically a functional computer with wheels (laughs) you know it's it's funny to me that when people get into repairing like a macbook that they discover when they take apart the macbook there's more computer underneath it's just computers all the way down steven and kind of need experience and know-how to really go in here and do this right doing this self-service repair program because they're you know they're trying to abide by uh upcoming laws and just taking care of lawsuits and getting the right to repair program people uh to back off a little bit and appease them and it's a it's an interesting program it's nice that people can have access to this but please normal people who if you've never done this before don't make this your first attempt you just don't want to do it and it's it is kind of odd to me that like people have been clamoring for this and apple is now offering detailed you know books and tools the same tools they use not dumbed down versions of it the same tools same parts that their authorized repair facilities use and people are saying i still can't buy every part of a macbook and just build one piece by piece at home it's so one of the complaints i thought was funny i saw a story from ifixit now apple's self repair program manages to make macbooks seem less repairable which I guess it's kind of funny. I mean, I get where he's coming from. Yeah, it, going through this entire process has to be daunting. But um, I guess the one of the tent poles of his argument that basically iFixit has been designing their own custom manuals to do certain repair processes in-house and selling those along with, you know, in-house iFixit tools. They have a whole thing going. They have a manual he brings up <laughs> for a 14-inch MacBook Pro battery replacement guide is 26 steps at iFixit. Now, he, he says that they've gone through the process for the MacBook Pro uh, kit from Apple. Sure. And sure. they sent a guide. That is 162 pages. Wow. I don't know if this is, you know, going down step by step and telling you how many times to turn a screw to the left before moving on uh, or how many pages of warranty information is in there. But it's just funny to me that 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 was the breaking down point. Like, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. We'll put links to the the self-service repair. And uh, finally, I just want to say that Code Conference by Vox Media is going to be happening September 6th through 8th, which was announced just before Apple released its event invite for September 7th. But Tim Cook, Lorraine Powell Jobs, and Johnny Ive are all going to be speaking at this conference. And Kara Swisher confirmed in a tweet that all three of them will be talking on stage together to, to also talk about Steve Jobs. And so that's probably going to be an incredible conference. I'm not sure if it's streaming live or if it's going to be recorded. I'm sure you'll be able to see at least clips later. But uh, excited for that panel. I'd be very interested to see what comes out of it. It's wild to think Kara Swisher has been doing this for 20 years. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to check it out. I mean, if there's three people in the world that know anything about Steve Jobs, that's, that's what they're going to be talking about is Steve Jobs. It's going to be those three people. I'd say it's going to be a very interesting conversation, and I, I'm, I'm going to watch it. Absolutely. Well, listeners, tweet at Wes and myself. Our Twitter handles are in the show notes. What is your location sharing practices? I'd love to know. 
Also, you can support the show in Apple Podcasts directly. You can get early access and an ad-free version there or at patreon.com slash appleinsider. And just to clear up a little confusion, I've been doing early access in the Apple Podcasts app, but some people were thinking that it was behind a paywall now. Not the case. It's just early access for paid supporters. The show will always be totally free and available on Fridays for everyone. Again, you can tweet at Wes and myself if you have any questions. Thanks for tuning in. and We'll catch you next time.